hey, before you see it, turn to someone and say, it's serve week. It's a big week at Journey. It is serve week at Journey, and I'm so excited. Let me on the front end of serve week just thank you for being a church that lives on mission. Already nearly 1,000 adults in our church signed up to serve our community in some way over the next week. We actually started yesterday with a team of people. Let me thank you for being a church that is on mission in more ways than just serving our community. Let me thank you for the last three weeks for being a church that cares more about the mission of Jesus than the man on the stage. I want to be honest with you. There are not a lot of churches where the lead pastor can go three weeks without preaching and the people get real upset because the guy they come to hear or the guy they'd like to hear is not on the stage. Thank you for being a church that understands our churches more about just the man on the stage. Thank you for being a church that understands the mission of our church is multiplication. And if we're going to help develop church planners like Christian Gracia, and did he not do a tremendous job the last three weeks preaching us in this series? Christian, so well done. So well done, as always. Um, we can't send someone out to start a church who's never preached more than one time in a row. Like, that's, like, that's not smart as a church to say we're going to develop church planners but never let them preach more than one time in a row because next August when his church launches in Las Vegas and he's in his sixth or seventh or eighth week straight, he needs to understand what, what it means to preach on Sunday, get up on Monday, make another one and do it again over and over and over again. So thank you for being a church that is on mission. Um, and I love you and I've missed you and it feels so good for me to be back in church today, but thank you that we do not have a relationship um, where if I show up to preach, you'll show up. Thank you that we are not just a church that's a, a weekend service, but we are a church that's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week mission of Jesus, amen? Like, that's the goal of our church. So thank you for your kind of big-minded understanding of the mission of God um, as we move forward as a church. Uh, we are in the final week of a series today called Kingdom Come. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. This has been a series that has taught us what Jesus has to say about getting ready for the end times and what we need to know about the end times. And when Christian started this series eight weeks ago, uh, he told us that knowing about the last day should impact how we live every day. So one of the reasons we study Matthew chapter 24 and 5 is not just to know what's coming, but so that we can understand what should be happening on a daily basis in our lives, knowing about the last day should impact how we live every day. That's been the thought of this eight weeks together. And as we kind of wrap up this series today, I want to just remind you where we've come from. Because Matthew chapter 24 started with a statement that led to questions. And Matthew 24 and 25 is all one answer to three questions. Jesus walks out of the temple in Jerusalem. I was there with 35 of our college kids two weeks ago. And the disciples say to him, this building is unbelievable. And there's a lot of things in Israel that like you walk into, you walk out of, and you're like, that was unbelievable. So the disciples say to Jesus, this place is unbelievable. And Jesus says, it's all going to be torn down. So they ask him three questions. When is the temple going to be torn down? What's going to be the sign of your coming kingdom? And Jesus, like, what will be the signs of the end? Jesus answers those questions in Matthew 24 and 25 with the longest recorded answers in Scripture. But you need to understand, as he answers those questions, he tells the disciples far more about what the condition of their hearts and hands should be as they serve Jesus near the end than focusing on the calendar of events they should be waiting for at the end. 
So as Jesus answers these questions for his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25, he's not really giving them a calendar as much as he's telling them the condition of their heart and their hands. I love the way that Christian kind of paraphrased, summarized Matthew 25 last week. Because we get to the end of Matthew 24, and Jesus says this, the day and the hour are unknown, so don't even really worry about it, but be ready for it. Be faithful. The calendar, it's unknown. Don't worry about the calendar. Just make sure you're faithful when it comes. And then Matthew 25 is filled with these stories of faithfulness. Christian last week summarized it this way. Jesus is teaching us what the kingdom should do while we wait for the kingdom to come. I thought that was a brilliant statement. Did you make that up on your own or did you read that from someone else? You, t- you, st- you, made, you made that up on your own? That was a good one. So that Matthew 25 teaches us what the kingdom should do while we wait for the kingdom to come. So Matthew 24 tells us you're not going to know the day or the hour, so be faithful. And then Matthew 25, there's these stories about being faithful. The stories of the uh, ten virgins with their oil lamps. Stay ready. Be faithful. Last week, the story of the men with the bags of gold. Keep serving in the kingdom. Be faithful. And this week, we're going to end with the final statement of the longest answer that Jesus ever gave. So as we get to the the end of Matthew chapter 25, we're going to see the final statement of the longest answer of the longest week in the book of Matthew. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We started the week after Easter in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, 22, and 23 are 109 verses on two days. The triumphal entry of Jesus and the Monday after that as he's discussing things in the temple. So we spent six weeks studying 109 verses. As we get to Tuesday of Passion Week... We're going to see the disciples ask Jesus this question. His answer is going to be 94 verses. I said this several weeks ago. Let me say it again. 94 verses is longer than 18 different books in the Bible. So like this is a very inductive answer on Jesus. What do you want us to know about the end? For comparison, the Sermon on the Mount, which is the theology of the entire kingdom of Jesus, is 108 verses. So almost the exact same amount of material given to one answer about the end times that Jesus gave to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, here's what you need to know about the end. And as we get to the final statement, he's going to tell us again, what you need to know about the end is far more about what you will be doing than when it's going to come. In Matthew chapter 25, we're going to pick up in verse 31, and here's what we're going to read. We're going to read all the way through verse 46. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Remember the second question, when are you going to come to inaugurate your kingdom? Jesus said, here it is. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him will sit on his glorious throne. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. 
prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger and needing clothes or sick and in prison and didn't help you? And he'll reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Powerful statement to end a powerful series. Now, next week, we will finish the life of Jesus in a brand new series we're starting in Matthew 26, 27, and 28 called It Is Finished. We will walk through the final five days of Jesus' life, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, between now and anniversary Sunday, September 17th. But here's what you need to understand. Too many times in Scripture we go from this end times teaching to the end of Jesus' life, and we forget that Jesus' end times teaching is not finished yet. Until he says what he says in verses 31 through 46. Because I believe it is the most powerfully missed portion of scripture regarding prophecy in all the Bible. Because Jesus' final statement about the end is not when it's going to come. But what followers of Jesus will be doing to serve him when it comes. And how followers of Jesus will be separated to him when it finally does come. So the teaching on prophecy is not finished until we finish what we're studying today. And we are going to jump into the last five days of Jesus' life next week. But today we're going to sit on what I believe is the biggest prophecy miss in all of the church. At least it was in my life for about 30 years. If it is in yours, I hope to open, I hope to open your, your hearts and your eyes to the truth of Jesus and being ready for the end today. We're going to start, number one, with what I just call a clear separation. As we enter this text, the final statement in a really long answer, almost as long as the Sermon on the Mount about the end times, is going to be a clear separation. Jesus is going to say at the end, there's going to be a separation, a very, very clear separation. And here's what you need to understand about this separation. Fifteen years ago or so when I read this, it separated my Christian life into how I lived before I understood this passage of prophecy and how I lived and what I've devoted my life to after I studied this section of prophecy. This, to me, has been a game changer in my life. It is the first drop in the bucket of God's call on my life to start our church that does ministry and mission the way we do ministry and mission. And to summarize it, here's what you need to know. It was my story. It's some of your stories today. I wanted to be a sheep. I lived like a goat. Let me say it again. I wanted to be a sheep. When we get to the end and the sheep are separated from the goats, I want to be a sheep. I want to be a sheep. But according to Jesus, I lived like a goat. My spiritual DNA was so immature and it was so self-focused that I needed to hear clearly from the master what I should be doing, what I should be doing to get ready for the end. So let me read it again just in case you missed it. Hear the separation. I'm going to start in verse 34, read again through verse 45. I know I just read it, but I want to make sure you hear it clearly this time. Look at the separation. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when do, when do we see you all those ways, and when do we do those things for you? And the king would reply, verse 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Verse 41, then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't look after me. They'll answer, Lord, when did we see you all those ways and not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you didn't do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Guys, I was a decade into being in pastoral ministry. It's my full-time job at a local church. And I was nearly three decades into living life as a follower of Jesus before I read this statement as if Jesus actually meant it. And it shook me to my core. Because I did not do, and I was not doing, the things that Jesus said sheep do. I wanted to be a sheep. I lived like a goat. And I remember reading that in my quiet time and thinking about the separation of those who clearly follow Jesus versus those who don't. And I remember being angry. I remember thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. I've been in church my whole life. And I think someone gave me the wrong list. Because my whole life I've been devoted to things like my individual righteousness, getting better for Jesus. My whole life I've been really chasing after individual spiritual commitments that I thought were near and dear to the heart of God. My whole life I've been engaged in growing my personal knowledge so I could, so I could know more about theology and the Bible and, and Jesus. And I started thinking like, my whole life has been spent building my kingdom, but not Jesus' kingdom. I think if you would have asked somebody who did not know who Jesus was, but who gauged Christianity by me, they would have, been, they would have said Christian is known far more by what he doesn't do than what he does do. His list of honoring Jesus is probably the 23 things he doesn't do because he's a Christian, not the four or five things he does do because he's a follower of Jesus. And I remember thinking, and I want to be a sheep, but my life looks like a goat according to Jesus. More than this, I knew prophecy. I had been taught prophecy by the prophecy people that we all study. Like, I'd been through a Bible college. Like, I had a degree, in, an undergraduate degree in Bible college and two seminary degrees. Um, one of the prophecy experts of the world in the late 90s was a man named Dr. Ed Heinsohn. He was one of the professors at Liberty while I was there. One of the men who introduced prophecy into the mainstream was a guy by the name of Tim LaHaye who wrote the Left Behind books. Tim LaHaye was giving big portions of money at the time to Liberty. They, they built right after I left the Tim LaHaye School of Prophecy. One time he came into Kansas City to host a series of meetings and I got to be the guy that drove him around for a week. Later, Kirk Cameron, who was playing the guy who got left behind in one of his movies, would come in and speak at his church and I got to spend some time escorting Kirk Cameron around. Like This was the generation I grew up in. I did everything but saddle up horses with Stephen Curtis Chapman and become <laughs> friends forever with Michael W. Smith. You know, like, the, this is my people. Everyone who grew up in church just exposed himself. The rest of you were like, you lost, you lost me on the last part. Like, that was my generation of people. 
I had been taught pre-tribulational rapture, seven literal years of great tribulation, three and a half good, three and a half bad, return of Christ to set up his thousand-year millennial kingdom on the earth, serve with the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of that thousand years, Satan gets loose, God throws him into the lake of fire, and then his eternal key. Like, I, that, I knew all that stuff. I was trained prophetically by the prophecy people, and yet no one told me the last most important part of prophecy, that this is how Christians live their life while they wait for Jesus to come back. I'd been taught far more about when it was coming than what to do while I was waiting in enter Matthew 25, which tells us what the kingdom does while we wait for the kingdom to come. And I see a clear separation and I don't know about you, but for me, I needed a clear redirection in my life. My inner beliefs were all correct for a follower of Jesus, but my outward action was incomplete. I just did not do for hurting people what Jesus said his followers would do for hurting people while they waited for the end to come. And as I worked my way through Matthew chapter 25, God helped me understand that there were three practical conclusions in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, that I needed to understand, the first was this, that save people have a spiritual awareness of hurting people. They, they know where hurt is. And number two, save people have spiritual action towards hurting people. They not only know where hurt is, but they run towards that hurt to do something about it. And I learned in Matthew 25 that nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And I learned as I studied prophecy, and what Jesus says Christians should do while they wait for the end and get ready for the end, what I saw is my eyes need to be bigger, my hands need to be bigger, my heart needs to be more humble to say I can't do everything, but I can do something, and I need to get engaged in seeing and serving the hurting around me. Can somebody say amen? amen. That is what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to do while we wait on the end. Jesus said in Matthew 24, the day and the hour are unknown. Don't spend your whole life on CNN trying to figure out when it's coming. Get busy serving the hurting. I'm never going to tell you the day or the hour. I'm going to tell you what you should do. See the hurting. Serve the hurting. You can't do everything. You can do something. Get busy serving. I want, I want to be a sheep. I wanted to be a sheep. According to Jesus, I was a goat. Now, listen, I'm not saying you earn your salvation by serving. I'm saying you give evidence of your salvation. You give evidence that Jesus is your Savior by living this way at the end. I'm not saying your responsibility to keep your salvation is to do these things. I'm saying your response from your salvation is to live the way Jesus tells you to live while we wait on the end. And when you look at Matthew 25, Jesus at the end of 24 says, stop worrying about when. At the end of 25, he says, get busy doing what? Find the hurting and serve them. I don't know if you know this, but you have an incredible opportunity this week at our church to see and serve the hurting, and you don't even have to do very much, to be honest with you. Some of our biggest projects are our easiest projects, and they're still coming. On Saturday, one of the most impactful projects we'll do that you won't, you won't see the hurting with your eyes, but you'll be able to see them with your heart. You'll be able to serve them with your hands. We have, um, we have on Saturday what's called um, a race with a point. Some of you are like, I, don't want to, I can't run a race. It's a .5K. I've been in my head trying to do the math of that, and it's so short, I can't. It's not a long way. It's like one lap around the church. Race with it. Hey, what is it? It's a .5K. 
It's built in a way that you and your family, your youngest children, if they're two or three, they can finish. Just one lap around the church. $15 a person, 100% of that money goes to support foster families in our community through what's called the care portal. Here's what happens when someone wants to be fostered. Usually there's somebody who's willing to help them immediately but not able. So Care Portal steps in and says, we got beds, we got clothes. A lot of foster kids, nearly 1,000 foster children in Jackson County alone. A lot of foster children leave their house with less than a backpack. They have nothing. And a relative or a friend or a teacher or coach is willing to take them quickly, but they have zero resources. So through the Care Portal, we have beds, we have clothes, we have backpacks, we have all these things that a family would need to say, I'm willing but not able to say, we'll help you. This week, I... I'm, I'm traveling this week. I don't get back till Friday night. If you spend 30 minutes on Saturday with, at Race with a Point, you'll have impact on the foster families of our community. We've still got on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday opportunities for you and your family, your kids, to help in landscaping one of the communities we've adopted here in Lee Summit that's underserved, a place called Sage Crossing. We've actually got opportunities on Tuesday for you to give blood if you want to do that. Now, unfortunately for me, I've been to Guatemala in the last year, so I'm not allowed to give blood. So it's like, I was really hoping to do that one this year, but I went to Guatemala, and I told Scott, make sure I'm in Guatemala one time a year, every year, until Sherry stops doing the blood drive, because I always want to have a spiritual reason to say no to giving blood, but you can do that, that's on Tuesday. Listen, you can leave this room if you're not yet engaged in serve week, you can walk across the atrium to the wall that says, uh, it's all about Jesus, and you can say, because I want to be a sheep, help me figure out someone to serve. In James chapter 2, here's how quickly the early church got off of their mission. Some people think written 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. James says this to people who are calling themselves Christians. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and food and One of you says to them, go in peace, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but doesn't do anything to help them? Like, what good is that? In answer to the rhetorical question, the answer is, that's no good at all. For a church to say we care without serving like we care is actually no good at all. So I want to challenge you this week. You want to be a sheep? I want to be a sheep. There's a clear separation at the end, sheep and goats. I'm not saying you earn your salvation. I'm saying you give evidence that you're a sheep by the way you serve hurting people. I'm not saying it's your responsibility to serve or you lose your salvation. I'm saying your response to what Jesus has done for you is to want to do something for someone else. There's this clear separation at the end of Matthew chapter 25. There's also, and I think this is important, there's number two, what I call an eternal existence. It's very, very clear that this is an eternal thing, that end times things are eternal things. Look at verses 34 and 41. Grab your pen if you've got your Bible open. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right... Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation. You might underline those three words or circle them, since the creation of the world. Verse 41, he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire. Circle those two words, eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. When we look at these statements, since the creation, eternal fire, what we're going to realize is that the kingdom of God and separation from God are both eternal realities. And some people at the end will then be with God forever, and some people at the end will then be separated from God forever. 
This, by the way, is not a a new belief in the year 2023. This has been the foundational belief, this eternal reality in the church forever and ever. We know as we look at New Testament scripture that the church was using hymns and creeds to celebrate doctrine really, really early, like statements that they would like memorize and say together or sing together. Around 140, 150 AD, we see the first kind of shape of churches celebrating doctrinally what they believe in the form of a creed that the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and then the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD would kind of really kind of write and say, this is what the Christian church believes. By the fourth century, that had been shortened to what we could say and memorize into what you and I know as the Apostles' Creed. And for 1,600 years, followers of Jesus have been saying, we believe in a lot of things, but one of them is eternity. We believe in eternity. I'm going to throw the Apostles' Creed up on the screen, and I want you to read it with me out loud if you would. Okay, I thought it was invisible ink for a second. I'm so glad it's there because I don't have it memorized, um, but now it's there for us. Y'all ready? We'll read it together. Um, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Pause before we read the next sentence. The word Catholic, lower C, means universal. means I believe there's a universal church. It doesn't belong to any country or ethnicity. Don't freak out. You can say the word Catholic. Okay, last sentence. Ready? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The church has always believed in eternal, everlasting life of both reward and retribution. And I'll be honest, as you read through the church fathers and doctrinal history, there is a very real and very understandable struggle with the doctrine of an eternal hell. Church struggled with it. Uh, One of the early church fathers, Origen, who lived from about uh, 185, 190 AD to about 250 AD, so about 150 years after Jesus, he would write in his writings that he thought those who died separated from Christ would be separated for a while, but they they would eventually figure out and end up figuring out how to realize they made a mistake and, like, get to Jesus, Uh, One of my favorite authors of all time, C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, uh, one of his books pictured um, people in hell, and he wasn't writing a theology book, but pictured people in hell who changed their mind and, and went to heaven. And over time, there became some confusion, because we all like the heaven thing, but there became some confusion in the heart of people about this eternal existence of a place called hell. And I don't know that you can talk about eternal realities without just quickly kind of mentioning some of the things that cause confusion in the church that Christians should be aware of because a lot of people drift on this issue of orthodoxy simply because um, the idea of of hell just seems seems so far-fetched from the heart of God that we read in Scripture. 
even though the Protestant church is going to believe it, and even though the Catholic church is going to believe it, and even though the Orthodox church is going to believe it, there's still kind of a struggle. So some doctrines have arisen that are incorrect that I think that you ought to at least be aware of. What are three confusions that have popped up in this area of the eternal existence, very specifically of what we call hell? The first would be what's called Christian universalism. Christian universalism is this belief that eventually all people are going to be restored and reconciled to God eternally. Like at some point, at some point, either now or in the afterlife, like the, it just has to be the heart of God that everyone ends up saved and with him. Like that just has to happen. This, I would be honest with you, according to scripture, this would be the heart of God. Scripture says God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This would be the heart of God. But this is not the reality of what Scripture teaches, and it's not the reality of our world, because some people don't want to be reconciled to the heart of God now and certainly not forever. So I think it's important that we understand, like, hey, like eventually just everyone gets, isn't that what John 3.16 means, that eventually everyone gets there? No, that's a bad doctrine. Another thing probably you've heard more about than Christian universalism would be this thought of purgatory. Purgatory is this Roman Catholic belief that there's this, this place, like a physical place, um, where you go after you die, between death and eternal life, where you are purged, that's what the word means, purged from your sin, you kind of work off your sin and then you can go to heaven. This kind of arose, I think, out of a heart that said, surely people won't spend an eternity away from God. Uh, Pope Gregory I, known as Gregory the Great, who reigned as the Bishop of Rome from 590 A.D. to about 604 when he died, and he really had great missions movement all over Italy, was one of the first people to say, there's no way God could leave people in the hell that the Bible describes. There's got to be a way out. And in the Middle Ages, um, very specifically with, with, a, with a guy that I read a lot and I like a lot, a guy by the name of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic Church had formally voted um, at the Council of Lyon in 1245 A.D. that there was a place in Middle Earth called Purgatory where if you died with sin, not being forgiven, died before your last rites were given by the priest, you would go to work off your sin. And then after you worked off your sin, then you would like eventually go to heaven. Uh, the church began to abuse this belief late in the Middle Ages because they would go to Danielle, for instance, um, after... Her husband died, and they would say, you know, Christian had a rough, he had a few, last few years were pretty rough spiritually. Um, he's in purgatory, Danielle. If you will give the church $5,000, uh, we'll ask God to forgive him, and then he can go to heaven. Danielle would probably say, you know what, he can stay there. Um, but, there <laughs> but there are some people who'd be like, let me, like, who do I make the check out to? So they begin selling what's called indulgence. They begin selling forgiveness for sins for people who had died and we're in purgatory. So the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther and the boys, totally rejected this idea of purgatory for, for a couple different reasons as, as, like, as they got into putting together sound doctrine. They would say, one, the Bible doesn't even, doesn't even refer to this, much less state it plainly. So this is not a biblical concept. Uh, more than that, if we believe you're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, like if you can't earn your salvation, how could you work it off after you're dead? That doesn't make any sense. Um, and it's leading to so many abuses that we're going to totally reject this doctrine. But some of you have been raised um, 
I think all of us have probably been raised with, with the th- like we use the word in our language, purgatory. It's a place you go when you're kind of in the in-between states of life and you feel like you're in a, in a bad spot. Um, the last doctrine that came up was a doctrine called annihilationism, which basically says this, God doesn't make anyone suffer for eternity. Uh, like if you die without a relationship with Jesus, like God just snuffs out your life and you're done forever. This allowed people to say, yes, God judges sin and sinful people who reject him. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like, like eternal torture. Like it's just one time and then it's over and, and then like it's done forever. And it doesn't go on and on and on. This would make sense. Like you can see yourself asking, you know, how could 30 to 50 to 70 years of rejecting Jesus lead to a million years of punishment? That seems a bit unfair. That like seems like a bit overdone. So they say, like, you know, maybe just like you say no to God and then you just you don't exist anymore. I'll be honest, my heart would like to believe any of these, but my Bible does not teach them. It teaches the exact opposite. It teaches the eternal existence of a, a, a place called heaven where you're with God forever and a place that the Bible calls hell where you're separated from God forever. And not just in the New Testament, not just Jesus. Some of the greatest Old Testament prophets ended their prophecy with this thought of an eternal existence separated from God. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 66 if you have your Bibles. Isaiah, the great prophet of Israel, ends his prophet, like the last verse of Isaiah seems to say there's an eternal hell. Isaiah 66, 22 through 24, Isaiah ends his book with the return of Messiah as the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So will your name and your descendants endure. There's this thought of the everlasting. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow before me, says the Lord, in internal existence. Verse 24, and they'll go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. So Old Testament prophets are saying there's an eternal existence connected to God and separated from God. Daniel nearly ends in the last chapters of his book. The prophet Daniel would say in Daniel 12, two, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So Isaiah talks about it, Daniel talks about it, and then of course Jesus in Matthew 25, 41 says like eternal fire. There's this eternal existence, which means this, as Christians, I think we have to have this conversation. Like, I think we have, to, we have to process this in our heart a little bit before we ever talk to anybody else about it. And I would say this, the doctrine of an eternal separation from God and hell prompts, I think, four thoughts from followers of Jesus. I think as we, as we hear this, as we learn this, as we process this, I don't want to say as we get okay with it, but as we, as we learn to trust God with it, I think we go through four, four things in our thought process. The first thought is going to be this, hell makes sense to us. Um, Hell makes sense to us because evil is really real to us. So I think in in one way, we look at hell and think, of course. Like people like Judas, yes, um, rejected Jesus. Um, People uh, people like Hitler, yes, like hell makes sense. Uh, In our generation, people like Osama bin Laden. Um, People like my junior high basketball coach. Like, like, right, it's like... (laughs) Some of you are like, my first wife, my current husband. Um, so like, it's like, just kidding, don't go too far. Um, some of you are like, it makes a little bit of sense. 
had someone say, aren't you afraid your junior high basketball coach can be watching? No, I hope he's watching because he still owes me an MC Hammer cassette tape that he took from me in eighth grade. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know you weren't supposed to um, have a dance party in the locker room before the game to get yourself ready for the game. I didn't, how would I know that when I was 13 or 14? When he came in the locker room, he taught me, but he took my tape, and I was no longer too legit to quit. So if you're watching, <laughs> I want you to send that back to me, please. Um, by the way, for all my friends in the congregation who are now going to spend the rest of the service trying to find memes of MC Hammer rather than listening to the rest of the sermon, <laughs> wait, send me the memes after service. Um, hell, like, hell makes sense to us. I would say this, hell makes so much sense to us that a lot of people who study the life of Jesus and live for Jesus would say something like this. If people like Hitler and Osama bin Laden could also go to heaven, I'm not sure I'd want to go there. I'm not sure I want to live with people like that for eternity, hearts like that for eternity. So like hell makes sense. Like the first thought we have, I think, is that, okay, hell, hell makes sense. We can get comfortable with the thought that evil should be, should be judged. I think it's also important to understand thought number two, that hell was not created for us. Jesus very specifically says this in Matthew 25, 41. Hell was not created for people. Hell was created for the devil and his angels who rebelled against God. Jesus makes that very, very clear. Uh, one of the men in my small groups texted me a couple weeks ago after one of Christian's message, messages and said, hey, is hell a place um, that God created that people go to, or is it just some kind of state of being like forever disconnected to God? And I responded back because I've been studying in Matthew 25. Well, I think the Bible very clearly states that God prepared hell. He created it for the devil and his angels. Now, People were not supposed to go there, but according to Matthew 25, people do go there. You say, how does that happen? Thought number three, people choose hell when they reject Jesus. I think we have to understand the reality of this. Again, not to be comfortable, but to trust. And I think to help people, like when we have conversations with people, does God send people to hell? Well, most choose to go there. Most reject Jesus. So Jesus would say in Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. See, the church's job is to go into the world and say, Jesus chose to save you if you will surrender to him. And a lot of people will say, no, thank you. When people reject Jesus, and they do, they choose hell. I don't want to say it's forced upon them as much as they choose it. It is a very clear decision put in front of them. Moses, thousands of years ago, would tell his people, choose life, not death. God's going to give you a decision. Choose life, not death. And then thought number four, which I think we always have to cling to, Christians deserve hell, but we don't receive it because of Jesus. Like hell's not something we've worked our way out of or that we don't deserve or that we've, we're somehow too good for. We're actually told in the Bible in Psalm 103, I read this a few weeks ago, I'm going to read it again though through this context, we're actually told Christians deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God. We just don't receive that if we choose Jesus. Psalm 103, David would say, the Lord is compassionate and he's gracious. He's slow to anger, he's abounding in love, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Look at this verse 10, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. We deserve to be separated from God. If we're not, it's because of the action of Jesus, not the action of ourselves. 
He does not repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You say, how can he choose to do that? Listen to the question. How can he choose to do that for some, but not for others? How can he choose to do that for some, but not for everyone? Well, we learn that Jesus has come to offer salvation to the world, but some say no. What we're going to learn, number three, is there's a great judgment that awaits people in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32, and we are judged not based on the action of our life, but based on our decision of whether or not to follow Jesus. So Matthew 25, 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels come with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. It's interesting because in Matthew 1.1, Matthew introduces us to the story of Jesus the Messiah, which means the king of Israel. He doesn't really refer to him as a king much in the rest of the book, but at the beginning of the book, he calls him a king, and at the end of his book, he reiterates he's a king. He's going to have a throne, and on this throne, he's going to execute judgment. I think for Christians studying prophecy, I don't think we can get out of this series without teaching Christians the three judgments that every Christian should understand that the Bible talks about as we get near the end and to the end. The first letter A is what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. In Revelation 20, we're told about a line of people who come. This will be where the final judgment of the spiritually dead who rejected God and his salvation offered to them are judged. We read that the books are brought out in some areas I've called this the book of the living, every person who's ever been alive. And then God compares the books of the living to those in the book of life, those who have received life through Jesus. And everyone's life and everyone's name who was in the book of the living, I lived, but not the book of life. I've not lived my connection to God through Jesus will be thrown forever into the eternal lake of fire. So the great white throne judgment is for everyone who's ever lived but who's not chosen life through Jesus. Revelation 20 says they'll stand before God and God will judge them not just on the action of their life but very specifically on the decision of their life to have life through Jesus or to do life on their own. Let me ask those of you a question who today would be in judgment A. How are you planning to connect to God through your own living, if not through life in Jesus? You will no longer after today be able to stand at this great white throne judgment and say, no one told me, because I'm telling you, life comes through Jesus, and you can choose to live life on your own and hope that's good enough to connect to God, or you can admit that I'm a sinner and my life deserves hell but I've been offered forgiveness in heaven, so I choose Jesus. After today, if you're at this judgment, is not because nobody didn't tell you, because you've been told. We're also told that Christians stand before judgment. Let her be a judgment called the judgment seat of Christ. This is the final judgment of followers of Jesus to receive their rewards or retribution done for spiritual work they did in their mission of Jesus. So I love this in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 through 10. Paul tells the church at Corinth, we, we live by faith and not by sight. Too hard to try to figure out God through what I see. So I, I, I figure out God through what I'm told. I love the first song we, we sang today. Like, God said it, so I'm going to believe it. We live by faith and not by sight. And Paul said, we're confident. Honestly, we'd rather be absent from this body and be present with the Lord. For we make it our aim to please God. 
whether I'm living in my body right now or whether I'm going to go be with Jesus, like we make it our aim to please God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive our reward or punishment for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So as a follower of Jesus, you're going to stand before God to re- listen closely, to receive your reward, not to earn your salvation, not responsible for your salvation, but to receive your reward for things like Serve Week 2023. Hey, you saw the hurting people in your community and you served them? Awesome, here's a reward for you. The Bible calls them crowns that we then immediately throw back at Jesus and say, no, you're more worthy of this than me. That's how that works. That's the judgment seat of Christ. Or to receive reprimand, meaning you went to a church that served the community. They made it so simple on you, you only had to run 0.5 of a kilometer. Even Jesus is like, I walked on water longer than that. Like, that's not very long. And you could help somebody in the community, and you didn't do that? I'm going to take your crown. Christian talked about this a lot. I'm going to take your crown. I'm going to give it to them because I know they invest their life in me by seeing and serving the hurting. So we should know, Christians, about the judgment seat of Christ. One day we're going to stand before God. We'd rather be with God right now, but one day when we stand there, God's going to be like, how'd you use the gift of salvation that I gave you? Did you see and serve the hurting, or did you just use it all on your own? But then we're going to see that the greatest judgment that we have to be aware of is the cross. Because the cross is the place where God's wrath against sin was satisfied for those who would place their faith in Jesus We must understand the punishment and the judgment of the cross. Listen to Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. It says we're all destined to die. I think everybody knows that. And after death to face judgment. I think we all know that. Sounds pretty scary. We're going to die and then be judged. Sounds pretty scary without verse 28. But verse 28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he'll appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The author of Hebrews says, listen, people are going to die and be judged. But Jesus died so they wouldn't have to be judged. So their name could be transferred from the book of the living to the book of life. I choose to live my life through Jesus. You may not know this. Nobody in the New Testament preached about judgment more than Jesus. And nobody in the New Testament did more to make sure we didn't receive it than Jesus Because of the cross. What do we need to know at the end? Day and the hour? Never going to know that. Jesus says, know this. Here would be a summary statement of the end. Sin matters. It matters in every one of the judgments that we just read about. Sin separates people from God eternally. Sin will cause you to live for yourself rather than living for Jesus and earning rewards. Sin killed Jesus. Sin matters. Guess what? Serving matters right up until the very end. It matters. Do I need to serve to be saved? Nope. But if you are saved, you do serve. Says who? Jesus. It's what sheep do. Sheep do that. I want to be a sheep, but I live like a goat. Do sheep stuff this week. Serving matters right up until the very end. It's how Jesus distinguishes his people from those who are not his. But more than anything, the Savior matters. The Savior matters because people die And are judged. But Jesus died first. So they would not have to be judged. If they would place their faith in his death. And their life in his hands. To live on his mission. What has God said to your heart today? And what do you need to do to process. And put action. To what God is saying to your heart. We're going to close the way we always close. With three reflection questions on the screen. That are going to allow you to process sin and serving and the Savior. 
But please don't leave because I'm going to come back at the end. And there are some of you today who if today was the final day, your place of judgment would be the great white throne. Because you've lived but you're not alive. Because you've never met Jesus. I don't want anyone to be able to walk out of the room today saying, nobody told me how. So I'll come back at the end of this three minutes. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, today can be the day that you do that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. And for those of you who want to be sheep but live like goats, I'm going to pray over you that God will give you the courage to walk across that atrium, sign up for your project, and as a family, be a sheep this week in our city so that people might see our shepherd. God, as we reflect on what you've taught us, open our hearts and our minds, open our hands, turn our feet towards your mission for us. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.